0: We've got a handful of situations that are already threatening the world order, as you know, and, and who knows where they may go. Russia and China would probably top that list, of course, but they're not alone. If you think about it, there's all kinds. As for Canada's readiness concerns, we've talked about this before over the past year or so, um, in testimony though, to the house of commons and in interviews with the media, a general Wayne Iyer, Canada's chief of defense staff has not held back at all in his assessment of the current situation and some of the risks that he sees on the horizon and what it means to the readiness of his troops and what needs to be done to make sure they are ready. So to get some insight on that, we're gonna chat with uh, Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University editor of the Canadian Military Journal, also the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by the Oxford University Press. Christian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time today, sir. Good morning. Always a pleasure. So, this uh, we're, we're talking primarily about Wayne Iyer and the things that he's said, and he's spoken quite candidly about a number of the issues that he sees facing our country's military. Some have said, you know, it's kind of unusual for the top military commander to be so frank and be so open about how he sees the situation. Do you agree? Is this unusual?
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting observation that you make about civil military relations because in this country, those tend to be relatively subjective in the sense that uh, chiefs of defense staffs are relatively deferential to the minister. But really, what we've seen over the last 25 years is this evolution in terms of international security, where the international security environment, the types of conflicts and threats we face, um, are becoming very complex, and by and large, politicians have a very hard time understanding those, let alone the Canadian public. And so, we've very much seen a change in so sort of civil-military relations, where not just in Canada, but in other countries as well, some of the senior leadership has been a bit more articulate uh, about the types of challenges, because there's a growing concern uh, that you know if we. But work on the premise that democracies often take it, for gra- take it for granted and we need to defend it and democracies under duress around the world that there's an increasing gap between our ability to actually prepare for the defense of that yeah. democracy and where the public and politicians are at in terms of what they're willing to do about it.
0: And it's, I think it makes sense. You know, If, if you're if you're the general, you're, you're saying, you know what, I'm just going to be honest with you about what we see and what the situation is here, almost in an educational um, way of, of trying Trying to just sort of shine a light on the situation and the shortcomings and get everybody on board. It's not a harmful approach by any means, is it?
1: Uh, no, I mean, p- critics will say that, you know, this is just the military trying to get more money, get more equipment and so forth. But look, I think if you look at our military um, and the very severe measures that General Air has implemented, for instance, of stopping all non-discretionary activity, uh, this military is under very serious duress. And yeah. if you had more than one concurrent serious crisis, for instance, a major domestic operation uh, and an international crisis, the military would not be able to respond in its current fashion to both of those crises, um, let alone being able to have uh, all the expertise and all the equipment that it would need uh, to respond to such a crisis. And so I think it's not just about the general posture of the armed forces. uh, It's about over 20 years of benign neglect by both sides of the political aisle uh, and uh, General Air now having to work with an organization that is, by and large, not fit for purpose for the challenges that we're encountering um, as our country, as our continent, and as the world.
0: In a year-end interview with the CBC, he said he thinks geopolitically the world is what he considers to be a turning point. This is the next year will be very, you know um, uh, fundamental to what happens going forward, and Canada is not in a position to respond. Do you think he's talking primarily about Russia and China? I mean that he also mentions the Arctic. There's a lot of different balls in the air, isn't there?
1: Yeah, and uh, add to that sort of uh, compound effects that are sort of fuel on the fire. If you think about uh, inflation, you think about a possible recession, uh, think about the ongoing demographic challenges and the rapid population growth that some of the least sustainable parts of the world continue to experience, compounded all of that uh, by the effects of uh, of climate change. Uh, So it's not just the instability that some of our adversaries that are looking to overthrow, the international system that we've built um, are, are generating, um, but how these are being accelerated by some of the factors that we simply cannot control. And, you know, in a democracy, we always have to remember that uh, people, we start with this values-based whatever, foreign policy, but really ultimately, if we don't have security as a country, as our allies, as our partners, then we're not going to be able to enjoy our prosperity, because that is ultimately built on our security and stability, and if we don't have prosperity, then we're also not going to be able to enjoy our democracy and democratic values. So security, um, uh, national, uh, regional, and international is ultimately a first mover.
0: And I think, you know, the the point that he's trying to make, and he's made pretty clearly, is we've actually had to reposition um, some of the things that we do in terms of responding. Like you said, if we had a a domestic incident and we had to respond to an international incident at the same time, we couldn't do it. Um, So he says he's going to position the forces that we are more interested in national defense rather than domestic issues. So, I mean... We just can't do it all. Bottom line, I think what he's trying to do is say, we need more, right? And, you know, he talks about procurement. He talks about the Indo-Pacific strategy saying, well, we can't meet the needs we have now. We can't add on to it. It sounds to me like he's just saying, this is all great, but we need a lot more support and help. We need to rethink the way we handle the military in this country.
1: Yeah, and it seems that the way the government is devising its strategy is fundamentally disconnected from the yeah. resources that we actually have. So it's great to have this Indo-Pacific strategy with trying to send frigates and all sorts of things out there. But look, if we don't even have those frigates, if we don't actually have the submarines that, for instance, urgently need to be renewed and uh, we're not even having a conversation about it, that's going to be very difficult. I'll give you a very concrete example. The United States and several allies have been pushing Canada hard to engage in a stability mission in Haiti in part because we have experience, we have the language competencies and so forth. The Canadian Armed Forces, with what it is currently doing around the world, in particular for NATO allies and its obligations to continental defense, simply does not have the capacity to engage in yet another major mission. And as a result, people are fundamentally suffering in countries around the world because Canada cannot step up with the capabilities that it has. Um, And our allies and our partners are noticing. And we're increasingly, on the one hand, not being taken seriously and on the other hand we're losing significant influence because when you cannot contribute you also don't have a
0: voice at the table do we continue to just talk the talk or ultimately we have to walk the walk right i mean we've talked about increasing our defense spending to the two percent required to be part of nato all, all these sorts of things are we at a point now where the understanding has sunk in that yes we actually need to do something about this
1: well, I think we're trying to have it both ways. We right, pretend yeah. to be a G7 country, but we're really sort of our defense posture and our spending is that of a, of a relatively modest sort of um, entity. There are many smaller countries that do much more on defense than we do. And so either we are a G7 country and we assert our interests in ourselves and are taken seriously and we equip and we staff up accordingly. Or if we say, look, we're just 10,000 people short. We don't want to spend the money. Uh, we don't have the equipment to do this then we're just going to say to the world, well, we're just going to be a secondary country. We're not going to have an interest in shaping, uh, in asserting our interests and in shaping the world and world events. We're just going to stand by and see what things happen. Then we can do that. But it means at a significant loss of influence to Canada, to Canada's interests and to Canada's credibility. And I would say that in the environment that we live in, um, and especially what's happening also south of the border, never has it been more important for Canada to be able to assert its interests when it comes to international stability security.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Christian, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time.
1: Always a pleasure. Thank you. Have a good morning.
0: You too. That's Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at the Royal Military College in Queen's University and editor of the Canadian Military Journal.